Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I set out the 3rd of April, 1722, going first eastward, and took what I think I may very honestly call a circuit in the very letter of it, for I went down by the coast of the Thames through the marshes or hundreds on the south side, passing Bow Bridge, where the county of Essex begins. Do you fancy having a punt as to the identity of that writer, famous in his day for his travels around the UK? He was heading towards the subject of today's show, the Thames Estuary. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Are morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a place called the Kittlehoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> a man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, you immersing yourself in the sights, sounds, and songs, For the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. No, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, hello, hello. The answer to the question before the credits was, of course, that was Daniel Defoe. And uh, he was heading towards the Thames estuary, and and so are the thoughts of my guests on today's programme. Francis Marshall, the Senior Curator of Art at uh, the Museum of London Docklands, and George Young, Senior Curator of Contemporary History. Hi, guys. Hello. Well, we've got to start with the location, actually. It's absolutely beautiful. We're in an old warehouse, brick and timber. We're looking down onto one of the wharves here in the shadow I suppose of some of the larger buildings in the Canary Wharf area the financial district. And I gather this building's got, uh, we're lucky to be here really. I gather the Luftwaffe gave it quite a a going over in World War II. It's an extraordinary survival. It's the only Georgian warehouse complex remaining in London. Dates from 1802 and it has been through the wars this building's been on fire it's been kind of very very close to um, major bombing in the second world war so it's a it's remarkable that it's still standing can you describe what it would have looked like before the 1940s well we're in warehouse one but this complex of warehouses went on half a mile beyond where we are so if you imagine at the moment there's only two warehouses left that is two warehouses out of a huge string of warehouses that were built by the west india dock company 
predominantly for the sugar trade. So they wanted to control and manage the trade from here, and they basically set out a massive construction project in what was then quite an empty area of London. And in a way, it resonates very much with the story of the estuary in that this is a huge man-made building project using the river um, to stimulate trade and commerce and to really kind of benefit London. So this kind of massive project, incredible project, ambitious, huge scale, is kind of a, an example of the way that London has kind of harnessed the power of the river and moved eastwards along the estuary in order to, to take the resources that the estuary has to offer and make the most of them. Of course, we could very easily spend quite a few episodes talking about the history of the docks, which until very recently were a thriving key to London's success, I suppose. We're focusing on the estuary, but as the river bleeds into the estuary, we can't really help those two histories becoming intermingled. I think probably we should talk about the location of the estuary, the shape of the estuary. We might have listeners from further afield who've got no idea what this thing is, what it looks like, where it is in relation to London, the city with a small c. So, Francis, whereabouts is the estuary? What does it look like? What is it? Well, that's a really interesting question. Basically, what we're talking about is the Thames beyond the barrier. Um, we're talking about a, about a 40-mile stretch of country from London out to say somewhere like Margate at the very outer edge of the estuary but so we're, so we're heading out east we're, ed- we're heading out east from London along the river down river towards the sea the estuary strictly speaking is where well if you look at a dictionary definition an estuary is where a river becomes changes from fresh water to, to salt water problem with the Thames is it's an incredibly contrary river because it's saline quite far up right up until about um, the Thames barrier it's it's there's quite a high degree of salinity Um, and even beyond that it's quite saline even further upstream than that it's quite saline so that's not a good guide Um, on the other hand if, if you think about say somewhere like South End on the north shore of the Thames and then somewhere like Gravesend, that sort of part of the country, the mouth of the river Medway. And if you were to draw a line between the two, I guess you'd say that back to places like Tilbury and maybe the Queen Elizabeth Bridge at Dartford, that's like the core estuary. So it's widening out towards the sea. And then further east than that, from about Medway through to, to Margate, that's the real outer estuary where you know the difference between the sea and the river is debatable mariners when they're navigating from the north sea into the thames if they draw a line from like margate up to i think orford ness in uh, on the east anglian coast once they cross that line then they consider themselves to be navigating the estuary so it's actually a huge stretch of water which takes in the tidal Thames and the North Sea in effect. So it's a pretty wide stretch of water. But then for the purposes of the the exhibition, we're also looking not just at the river as as a physical stretch of water, but also the activity that takes place on it and the activity that takes place on either side of the Thames itself, actually on the on the shore. So the docks, the housing estates, the, the natural environment indeed. I mean, it's quite clear what the Museum of London takes as its primary interest. What was the genesis of the idea to look east and sort of embrace this stuff that geographically perhaps has less of a claim to belong to London? Well, there's been a sense that London is moving east for a while um, and enhanced by kind of all of the stories about East London regeneration last year. Uh, Also kind of major redevelopment projects along the estuary, 
the Thames Estuary is kind of identified as a zone for housing and for basically releasing some of the pressures on London. These are the sort of Thames Gateway projects. Exactly, yeah, the Thames Gateway projects. So really, this is about a bigger idea of London. So not the physical boundary of London. It's about the influence of London, the way that London spreads beyond its kind of mapped boundary and starts to influence the environment around it. And the estuary has kind of become a hot topic as well because of the conversations around the airport and whether or not to build an airport in the estuary. So there's quite a lot of contemporary discussion about the airport that kind of wasn't the cause of the exhibition but certainly kind of has kind of bubbled up in parallel with the development of the exhibition process. So we know that people are talking about the estuary but not really thinking about the estuary. So they're imagining putting putting kind of grand projects there but not necessarily knowing the estuary what they're what they're placing the project within so what we're trying to do is show people a bit of that landscape so kind of the history of the estuary the depth of stories there so we're basically just asking people to focus on focus east and think about the estuary while they've already got got it in their minds as part of contemporary debate I've certainly had a lot of people discussing the estuary in the context of the airport plan. For, for anybody who's been on Mars for the last few years, by the way, the airport plan is, uh, or the most recent airport plan, we should say, has been to put a sort of Tracy Island structure somewhere in the, the estuary and hope that we don't get taken down by flocks of birds flying into the uh, <laughs> into the engines. And I think that I've heard the estuary mentioned in the context of being a, a haven for wildlife, and that's about it, really. I think people have the impression that there's nought else there but there have been airport plans aplenty yeah and the idea of an airport in the estuary first emerges seriously in 1943 so london goes through periodic crises of not having enough capacity for its demand for flights basically and at that point it's Croydon is london's primary airport Believe it or not, Croydon is the glamorous hub of international travel. And you've got celebrities coming in and out of Croydon. You've got those major kind of transatlantic flights, jet setters breaking records out of it. But it's quite small. And what happens is aviation ceases to be that kind of glamorous, kind of adventurous thing and becomes much more normal. And that means there's much bigger demand and the planes are increasing in size. And Croydon is hemmed in by housing and the runway's on a bit of a slope which doesn't isn't ideal so it was requisitioned during the second world war and there was serious consideration about what are we going to do after the war Croydon's no longer going to meet our needs and at that stage obviously Heathrow ended up being the the site that was identified as going to be the primary airport for London but there was quite a lot of discussion about building something at Cliff which is again on the estuary and the Port of London Authority, whose collection we hold here in the archive at, at Docklands, they were quite involved in this plan. And in their kind of monthly magazine, they kind of published reports on this idea for whether or not we should put an airport at, at Cliff. And a lot of the case for putting it there is, is similar to the sort of arguments you'll find now. So it's kind of it's sort of away from the city. It kind of won't affect the population so much. We won't have so much noise, so much disturbance to residents. Cliff kind of. Yeah, it kind of just sort of falls away, the idea, really. Nothing dramatic happens, but it kind of becomes, sort of feels more sensible to, to expand Heathrow. Heathrow expands Gatwick also, is kind of almost an overspill for Croydon, and those two develop in parallel and, and supply the city for another couple of decades. But then you get to the late 60s, and again, those airports are reaching their boundaries. And there's a. Well, Heathrow reached its capacity then as well. That was the case that was made, yeah, at that time, that actually there wasn't any more space at Heathrow and Gatwick then. And there was a commission set up by the government into London's third airport. What should London's third airport be? And 
lots and lots of sites were considered, but one that, again, one that came up was in the estuary. So there's one at Maplin Sands, which is Falness. Uh, decided not to call it Falness because <laughs> I don't know. Maplin sounded Maplin Maplin sounded more glamorous, and also Fowl had the association with birds. So as you mentioned, the kind of the idea that the birds would get in the way of the planes was kind of integral to the the name Falness. So they decided they call it Maplin Sands. By, by the way, I love that euphemism that they get in the way of the planes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is a euphemism. Essentially, there's a, there is a, a fear that because of the sheer number of birds in that part of the world that it does increase the risk of bird strikes of birds entering the plane's engines and that can cause engines to fail so there is a, a genuine concern about yeah. whether how, that, how the bird population would be managed in order to make sure that that didn't increase the risk for human beings so we, we have no airport at Maplin Sands I can see that we have no airport at Maplin Sands it got quite far it went through Parliament Ted Heath was very much behind it and much in the same way that um, the new airport often gets called Boris Island at that point um, the Labour opposition called Maplin Heathograd <laughs> so they saw it as like a sort of almost Soviet style plan bear in mind the period it's the Cold War uh, to kind of a, for a planned settlement so it wasn't just a an airport it was also a housing development it was also a seaport a deep seaport and um this kind of planned community and all of the transport links out of it were kind of seen as yeah kind of a almost soviet style planned community so so the labor opposition at the time um chipped away at the idea but it got quite far it, the act was passed in parliament and in 1973 and they even got to the stage of doing some test reclamations of land because they were going to reclaim land off Falness to create the space for this airport. And so they got very, very close. Um, but then there was a change of government. Obviously, Labour had been critical of the plan already. Um, but also the demand fell away. So this kind of idea that we were at capacity suddenly didn't hold water anymore. There was an oil crisis, which reduced the number of flights, which meant that actually, you know, we were OK. We didn't need to build a big, massive, four-runway airport at, at Maplin. So now you've obviously got Stansted, Luton, even London South End now is being called a London airport. So those other airports took on more capacity. They changed the flight patterns. They they grew the number of flights that you could put through each of those other airports and expanded the number of airports ringing London that served the city. So Maplin just kind of passed into history and almost got forgotten until recent kind of discussions have revived this idea again. And there are quite a lot of similarities between that historic plan and the, and the ideas that are, are floating around now. Floating around now, yes. <laughs> <laughs> London is Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 16,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD. And they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. I know that on the one hand, what, one of the, the aspects of what we're talking about here today, the estuary exhibition, is all about getting people to connect, reconnect maybe with the estuary and think about what it means. And I know that, the, of course, the airport discussion forms a part of that. But there's a bit of me thinking, well, if anybody's in a good position to, to make a sort of informed idea of whether the estuary airport idea really is uh, sensible, it could be the people who are close in on it. So personally, what's your sort of impression? Having been exposed to, to the many different facets of the estuary, do you think it makes sense to put an airport there, Francis? Well, I think, I think the thing is that it's quite clear from the works that we've drawn together into the exhibition and obviously the work that we've done that there's been activity 
out there all the time. Um, you know, people have been active in the estuary, developing it, using it, drawing on its resources, playing in it. Um, so that's always been there. Um, I think as far as the exhibition is concerned, part of the reason for doing it was to give people an opportunity to look at the estuary through artists' eyes, and, and artists are quite good at presenting sort of multifaceted, nuanced views rather than simply a didactic historical show. And that allows people basically to make their own minds up. So I'm, you know, the museum is simply saying, here's, here's the estuary. But that's an interesting point that you make. It, it isn't simply that they're parachuting a, a whole lot of construction in on an area that is otherwise devoid of uh, man's influence. Well, no, they're not. No, in that sense, no, they're not. It's more complicated than that, and I think, you know, it's important to 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 have a look, a balanced view, basically, of, of what what's there, what the estuary actually is. Yeah. Can we talk a little, a little bit about the influence and the? I almost want to say the threat, perhaps, offered by the estuary to London. What, what is that relationship between London and the estuary? Well, historically, um, obviously, it, it's it's London's. Well, I was going to say back door, it's the front door, that's the way the world gets to London and London gets to the world and that means trade, that means um, immigration and emigration um, and that in a, in a sense is an ongoing story, it, it continues and also clearly we um, harness the energy of the estuary for, for power, you know recently, in fact last year the largest or the first phase of the largest wind farm I think in the world, the London Array opened um, the estuary is full of offshore wind farms. London as a city and, and the UK at large harnesses the, the Thames and the Thames estuary um, for all those kind of purposes. Um, but of course we can't get away from the fact that the, the Thames is a tidal river and um, you know uh, the estuary uh, as that sort of mouth, that big funnel from the North Sea into right down into the middle of London... You know, there is a risk there, which has been there, well, for as long as the river's been there, of the river occasionally bursting its banks, which has happened on numerous occasions. Um, And indeed, in 1953, of course, there was a huge um, flood when um, I think Canvey Island was was practically wiped out. Uh, Many people lost their lives, and that was part of the reason why we really began to seriously think about putting a Thames barrier there. And we've had a Thames barrier now for you know, um, quite some time. Um, but even that is getting to the end of its useful life, in fact, that, you know, that this is another reason for people, when they've been looking at developments for the airport, have been thinking about ways of using the airport to, to then sort of hang pods off, which would basically take the Thames Barrier further out into the estuary because the global uh, environment is changing, uh, sea levels are rising... In any case, just as a geographical fact, um, England is basically tilting down at a rate a rate of about a millimetre a, a decade or something like that. I can't remember exactly what the, the exact figure is, but basically, you know, that, uh, that, that is happening. So, you know, we're going to have to think seriously about how we, uh, you know, the, the river, we, you know, it's, it's that thing, you know, we use it all the time, we take it for granted, but we've got a big barrier there to keep the thing out because it's actually, it's pretty powerful, it's very powerful, very, 
very dangerous in fact it's it's a it's a big scary thing and it's right there in the middle of the of the city but we like to keep it out what about traffic going in the opposite direction clearly we've got the risk of inundation coming in from the estuary trying to squeeze all that amount of water into a little river like the thames what is the relationship the sort of outgoing relationship at the moment what do londoners do with the estuary well londoners um it's still a leisure destination so think about margate or south end on sea um they kind of had a historic kind of relationship with London particularly East Enders would go out to South End and we've got things like in our collection a postcard sent from South End back to East London which seems crazy now because that's barely any it's 40 miles <laughs> but um but actually that you know this there it's a leisure destination historically it's a leisure destination again now and you know you go to Wistful on bank holiday weekend and you'll you will still find London at the seaside enjoying itself taking taking advantage of this space mm. the light the river to kind of break away from everyday everyday life in london so it's still serving that serve purpose um it's still serving as francis said the kind of energy needs of the city so london is taking from the estuary um its wildness and harnessing it in service of the energy energy requirements of the city the estuary still has Til- tilbury a major port so the port function hasn't gone it's just moved out of out of london as we know it and into the estuary so a lot of the things that we've always used the estuary for we're still using the estuary for i think the thing to think about with london the estuary is that the estuary allows london not to think about certain things so we place certain things out of the boundaries of london so that we don't, so that we don't have to consider them in the city and one of them is that threat of nature that kind of idea that there's this surging powerful river going through this city that has the potential to inundate us all um so we've kind of we've we've erected the barrier and shifted it outside of our our world so that london can carry on and and not need to not need to worry about that on a daily basis so we kind of use it as a buffer zone as a protection for london and can't stress that enough enough at the museum of london docklands it really is such a powerful force in the story of the trade the commerce the migration in and out of london that the, the estuary is critical to all of those things and london is a world city and it wouldn't be a world city without that that gateway to the world we're still talking about it as the thing that elevates london above others and makes it exceptional. That is a return in a sense then, isn't it? Because with the advent of air travel, of course, I guess the importance of the estuary and the river as a gateway was diminished slightly. But yes, returning the airport to that position seems kind of symbolic. I want to return to geography, though, because I know, this, Francis, this is very much your favourite subject. Um, what, what do we have in terms of geographic features that people might not be familiar with, like islands in the estuary and things like that? Because as a Londoner, I'm not allowed to know anything past the Queen Elizabeth Bridge, because <laughs> that's the M25, isn't it? And anything outside of that zone is um, beyond the pale. Bandit country. Bandit, <laughs> bandit country, yes, exactly. But I'm going to rebel against that, and I'm going to try and have some knowledge about the uh, the estuary. So what's in the estuary that we might not be aware of? Well, I mean... Francis uh, thinks, I have no idea either. I'm a Londoner. <laughs> I mean, you've mentioned Canby Island, for example. Yeah, well, and is that the only island? Are there other islands? What's going on? I hear Madagascar somewhere near there yeah, as well. well yeah, Madagascar's a little bit outside the Thames estuary. But basically, uh, you know, you, you, yes, Canby Island is, is one of the islands, but there are various sort of islands and estuaries of other rivers running into the Thames estuary like there's the the Medway runs into um, into the into the Thames estuary uh, just beyond Gravesend 
Um, there are places like Whitstable, Margate, Southend, as uh, George was saying. Southend's got the longest pleasure pier in the world, one and a quarter miles. And in fact, in the exhibition, there's a photograph by um, one of the country's leading young photographers, Simon Roberts, of Southend, looking... It's almost like you're standing on, on the front of Southend, looking along this fantastic pier, running straight out into this huge expanse of sea and sky. It's, it's the most incredible photograph uh, and, and manages to make Southend look like Santa Monica. It's, it's, it's a fantastic photograph. Southend is, 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 is London on holiday, basically. That's what South End is. Is, it, is there still that tradition? Because it, it used to be that the East End would empty out into those uh, locations that you're mentioning. Does that still go on? Um, well, obviously, people's holiday habits have changed, and that's affected places like South End and Margate and, and Whitstable. But I think they're, they're, those towns uh, are, are clearly beginning to revitalise themselves and reinvent themselves. I mean, obviously, Margate's got things like Turner Contemporary there. Uh, there are art festivals going on in, in Whitstable and so on. So, so they're, they're, they're redeveloping themselves, like all places are these days. They're redefining themselves, reshaping themselves. But having said that, I mean, yeah, I think people do still go out to places like Southend and Margate from London. They do use it as a, as a leisure destination. They may not do it in the way that they used to, say, 50 years ago, but they still use it. They still go there. Have I made this up completely? I think I heard that there are World War Two forts or forts from some sort of yeah. uh, period. Is, it, is that correct? There definitely are. Yeah. What, what are they all about? Can you can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, um, well, for the same reasons that we've just been talking about, you know, Lund- uh, the Met- the estuary is is a nice big open doorway into London. So over millennia, it's been the the way that the invading people have got into into London, into the country altogether. Um, so during the Second World War, um, around about 1942, they thought, well, we've been blitzed by the, the Luftwaffe. We're going to put out an early warning system, basically, and an early de- defence system in the estuary to basically, you know, either give us an early warning of the Luftwaffe coming or shoot them down if, if we can. And so what they did was they put in... Um, these structures called Maunsell forts um, they're like cameras on tripods sitting in clusters of seven all linked together by catwalks between them sitting out in the estuary and for periods of about 36 days the army would be based on these things this is during the Second World War and they would they would basically be shooting down or shooting at Luftwaffe V1 flying bombs and if they didn't shoot them down they'd be sending early signals back to London to say the Luftwaffe are on their way. After the war they were abandoned but they're still there rusting away just off the coast not far from Whitstable. In fact, any, any, any part of the estuary where you are around about that point, if you look out to sea, you will be able to see these sea forts sort of sitting there. Actually, not on tripods, they've got four legs, but the, the idea is a pretty good analogy, I think. That's what they look like. They're boxes on, on four legs sitting up about 50 feet from the surface of the sea. Um, and one of the artists in the exhibition, a guy called Stephen Turner, he spent 36 days, he got onto one of these things, spent 36 days living 
on one of the sea forts. And he, he recorded this as in, in, a, in, a, in a sort of website and blog, his experiences of, of living on this and how his life became guided by nature, basically, because he had very rudimentary equipment with him, so not much electricity. So basically when it got dark, he went to bed. When it got light, he got up. But at the same time, he's exploring this sea fort and he, the things that he finds are things like, you know, the remains of these soldiers' pin-up girls on, on the side of the walls, these faded pin-up girls sort of like like something out of uh, Pompeii almost you know um, or then that there was wool he, he found loads of strands of wool and apparently uh, one of the strategies that the army d- devised to keep the soldiers occupied while they were on these forts to stop them going stir crazy or whatever it was that they thought might happen they, they taught them to knit. I, I wondered whether you were going to say that. Really? So we've got all... The, I mean, this is just an incredible picture you're painting. Uh, so we've got, we've got all the soldiers out there in, the, in this wilderness situation, because it really does sound kind of Scott of the Antarctic unfriendly. Well, absolutely, because, I mean, they're, they're, they're out there in the middle of, well, the sea, the river, the estuary. You know, they're not... It's not like, OK, we'll clock off now and go to the pub. They're out there for a good month, more than a month, um, in close confined quarters you know and, and Stephen Turner out there by himself for the exhibition uh, what he's done is he's basically presented two slide projections running concurrently which present the images and the images sort of speak to one another so what comes up on one screen will echo in some way what's on the other side so you, you will get images as I said of, of well, things like the, the, the pin-up girls or the, the wool or uh, obviously strange but perhaps inevitable things like the only visitors these things have had for, for many years is birds so there'll be the remains of birds which have just gone there and died basically um, on the other hand through the hole in the floor he can photograph the sea bass because it's a breeding ground for sea bass out there in the middle of the estuary and you can see these f- images of these, these fish swimming around and then there's all of these strange kind of um, f- almost like found object situations where some holes which have been pierced through the side of the the sea fort because they're basically steel is almost exactly the constellation of Cassiopeia I think it was or something like that and and, and so he's he's making these quite in-depth investigations into like the the history of the sea forts but at the same time his own relationship to nature you know so there's a lot of ideas coming out of this activity that he took part in that's utterly fascinating i genuinely have the feeling that my head's been uh, <laughs> opened up in some peculiar way which of course is the the aim of the exhibition i've no doubt at all as a curator of contemporary history george we've talked a bit about the second world war of 53 you know in terms of history that's quite tightly bracketed which historical aspects of the history that we haven't mentioned perhaps interest you in particular oh it's it's an incredibly rich historical landscape even with that detailed description of the Maunsell forts there's still even more than that to them they're a massive base for pirate radio in the 60s so they've got this countercultural history as well so the estuary is also kind of illegally beaming sound waves into London which personally I I love that kind of cultural history side of it but there's kind of a a slightly rebellious nature to the estuary that um that kind of feeds back into London and uh, pirate radio is a fantastic example of that and 53 is incredibly 
traumatic still for those communities who were affected, Canberra Island particularly. And what's really shocking about 53 and what tells you a little bit about how history, how fast history is moving now is that people knew that was coming. It was moving down the East Coast. The communications weren't there to tell people to get out. But they, they were hours. They, were, they knew hours in advance that this, this tidal surge was coming. And there was no way of kind of getting that message to the people who, who would eventually die on Canby. So you kind of, you suddenly have this picture of, this is only two generations ago, it's not that long ago, of people having no early warning system for that natural disaster that was coming their way. Um, and it kind of gives you a sense of how much communications have moved on, how, how different that event, how differently that event would be handled today. When does contemporary history begin, by the way? Oh, <laughs> oh you did have to ask that. <laughs> um, there's lots of ways of defining it. Um, we tend to treat it as within living memory, so if someone can remember it, uh, if you might still have it in your house, if it's um, not, quite, not quite been settled in the history books, then we treat it as contemporary sometimes we'll treat contemporary as the very immediate so we'll collect from an event happening in the city in the moment so for instance we collected the olympics last year at the time as it's happening so sometimes we're very much taking it up to what happened yesterday what happened this morning it's an interesting phrase you you collected the olympics what do you mean by that (laughs) we did um we collect museums collect um so we took various strategies for something like that so we spent quite a lot of time in advance thinking about it. We recorded a lot of stories with people, oral histories with people who were on the site that was earmarked before any change happened. So we could get a sense of, of the difference that the Olympic made, Olympics made to that part of London. We collected tweets during the Olympics uh, in a project called Citizen Curators. So there's a hashtag called Citizen Curators. And if anyone who used it, we collected their tweet during the two-week period of the Olympic Games. So we've got an archive of people's kind of immediate reaction to the events as they unfolded and the kind of changing dynamic of public opinion as it's like, is it going to be okay? Is it going to be okay? Oh, I love the opening ceremony. This is brilliant. Oh, I can't believe it. We've won six golds in one day. So kind of, you kind of get that kind of emotional arc and collecting digitally with something like uh, Citizen Curators really gives another dimension to the historical record. So we, so we do actively contain, uh, collect the contemporary material right up to the present day. There's always the, the fear in the back of your mind that you might miss something important. But at the same time, there's the, the equivalent fear that if you don't collect it now, you never will. Some of those things are so transient. Those emotions during the Olympic Games will fade over time. And actually doing it while it's happening means that we have such a, an interesting record that would, no, would never otherwise survive. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting a picture. That's that's very interesting. That, so it's far away from the estuary. <laughs> well, no, it, I, I think I think it actually isn't because as you're curating contemporary history, you're at the coalface of history. You're not doing a forensics job on something that happened centuries ago. You're you're responsible, as you say, for collecting some of this stuff. So these contemporary expressions and impressions of of the estuary. I mean, this is I, I understand completely why you're involved in this exhibition. There, it's not just art; it is recording and things for posterity too. Art is one of the many mediums that the Museum of London uses to tell the story of London. And this show art is particularly good at kind of picking up on the kind of uncertainties, the tensions in, in the estuary. It's a kind of perfect, a perfect material, perfect type of material to use to t- tell this story. And so we, we use the whole range of things. Our, 
our collections range from industrial kind of history if you want um an old loom we've got lots of those <laughs> um, I wasn't sure if you're trying to sell me one from the tone you no, can't, we, we can't sell it but you can see it um so we have just a huge diversity anything that comes into the remit of social history so from a flat iron to um a child's toy so we have all of those sorts of objects we have the digital collecting we have oral histories which are people's life stories at 5,000 hours or more of people's life stories in London that give you a, a sense of the city and and contemporary art is part of that picture and it's a really important part of that picture and an increasingly important part of the picture for Museum of London we're really re-engaging with contemporary art at the moment and this is the biggest ever contemporary art show at Museum of London Docklands it's a real step for us uh, in terms of, of contemporary art Well, here we are. We're down at the estuary exhibition now. It's still being put together, of course, because, as you know, we're recording this just slightly before the show opens. And uh, there's lots of bits and pieces around tins of paint, the lighting's yet to be switched on. I would just say, by the way, if you're even slightly tempted to come here and you're interested in coffee shops, then that's, that alone is a very good reason to come to the Museum of London Docklands. What a fantastic place. Lots of oak beams, comfortable chairs. And then uh, through the doors into the estuary exhibition... Um, one of the first exhibits that we can see here are uh, two enormous canvases and absolutely beautiful. Francis, what, what are these all about? Um, these are two paintings by an artist called Jock McFadden, um, who's worked in London for, for many years, uh, since the 1980s, 1970s, I think, even. But he's had a long sort of engagement with Essex and the estuary, um, both as a place for him to go out with his quad bike, I think, but also he's he's interested in in the landscape out there. This this incredibly flat landscape, and obviously he's very interested in sky. So you get this huge expanse of sky. The canvas that we're looking at at the moment is called um, Perfleet from Dracula's Garden. Wonderfully evocative title, um, but it's it's this view just straight across the the width of the river towards this power station or uh, industrial complex. And it really, I think, gives you that sense of the industrial estuary or lower Thames where the the, the river's really kind of widening out. Um, so you get a sense of the river as, as a, a width, an expanse of water. You get the sky, the huge sky, and then these incredibly beautiful uh, industrial structures in this extraordinary landscape. And it, it's that combination of, I guess, the man-made and the natural which in some ways kind of sums up the estuary in a strange kind of a way. It is an interesting relationship, and you can see it very clearly when you go into that part of the world, I think. What I'm enjoying about this picture, and it needs to be the size it is, doesn't it? It's it's eight feet across. It needs to be that big. The sort of power station-y thing that you mentioned, of course, attracts the eye, first of all, a big gleaming silver-white thing. On the other side, contrasting it is a crane, very stark and black against the sky behind it. But uh, as I look at it, I notice, that there's a sort of a modern office building off to the left then there's a little church we can see the shard over in the distance and all of these are as you say examples of man's uh, impositions on the landscape they are indeed yeah that's right i mean it is it's about this working an ongoing relationship between london and the river i think and, and you can see it played out in um, a number of the works that we've got on showing the exhibition. 
I know I did the uh, putting the finger across the skyline experiment here, and I discovered that if if you do that, you almost can't tell the difference between the the sky and the the water below, and that maybe is one of the challenges. I'm not sure for the estuary exhibition as a whole because there's not there's not a lot on the face of it there, is there? There's there's water, there's sky. This it's defined by emptiness in a way. Well, it is. Well, there is that, but at the same time, it's one of those places where actually, as soon as you start to look you find out that there's a huge amount there in fact there's a huge amount of activity there's a huge amount of people you know physically living there working there and uh, there's the architecture of the power stations and the industrial unit there are housing developments clearly the the Thames gateway and also there's the history you know there's that long engagement as, as the phrase goes it's liquid history the Thames uh, and also again part of the reason for doing the exhibition in the way that we have is that you know it's always been uh, an inspiration for artists and writers people like obviously people like Turner painted the estuary Constable painted the estuary Dickens wrote about the estuary Conrad Conrad wrote about the estuary T.S. Eliot wrote about the estuary and today you know we've got a dozen artists here who who just in the past 30 years have engaged with the estuary and, and used it as an inspiration for their work so there's an awful lot actually in the estuary it's not an empty space at all this is the whole point not, not, not least inspiration by the same <laughs> indeed yeah definitely definitely let's move on to the other enormous canvas in here we've got again the horizon plays an important part but what are we looking at here Francis it's called Dagenham and so again, it, it's 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 looking at that um, industrial, that that sort of interesting part of the world, which which perhaps you, it, it tends to be kind of overlooked. Maybe that's the whole thing about the estuary. It's one of those places where you know it's there, but you sort of overlook it. But actually, you know, once you start getting in there, you know, that you find out how much there really is there. Where would you like us to flow to next? heading into an area that is I would say characterised by smaller pictures and some of the items that are being depicted here are not perhaps what one would naturally expect to find frame. No indeed, these are a hundred photographs by Gail Chongquan and she last year in fact did a project uh, which involved walking down the banks of the Thames from London Bridge right down to Margate, Whitstable area and what she did was basically photograph bits Bits of flotsam and jetsam, bits of trash, things which have been washed up on the foreshore, basically. And then originally what she did was she presented them as a a Flickr project. She treated them with uh, the Instagram app uh, and then posted them on Flickr. Um, But now she's gone a step further and um, produced you know, physical prints and hung them on the wall. So basically the constellation, the way they're sort of laid out, relates to their sort of geographic position on the banks of the Thames and in relation to the distance so these are the works closer towards the city and it works back that way towards the the sort of outer estuary Um, but basically I think what's interesting about them is there's a wide range of stuff here it's not all just trash but I mean you know on the one hand you've got things like plastic bowls plastic bags there's a trashed hoover I think that one is (laughs) There's the top of a shopping trolley sticking out of the mud there. That's right. And then and then you get things like um, gulls' footprints and things. So it's a, a range of the, again, this idea of 
man's activity and natural activity all sort of going together. And I think the other thing that's interesting about these pieces is that although they're, by and large, it's stuff that's just got thrown away and washed up, by sort of focusing on them in this way, it does sort of two things. It makes you think about them in a different way. It makes you think about them as almost as something beautiful. But also, of course, it does throw up those sort of issues about how people relate to the river and indeed to the, to the wider environment in quite a simple project, if you like. Well, I say simple. I mean, walking the length of the river isn't a simple thing to do. And it, you know, <laughs> <laughs> photographing little bits and bobs that you find on the foreshore isn't a simple thing to do either. Yes, it's mm. as though nature has been used as a sort of a cushion upon which to yeah. present each of these articles. Does it, it doesn't speak very favourably of uh, mankind's kindness to the environment in which he lives. Well, possibly not, but I mean, that, that's something that's worth thinking about, I think, definitely. Do we find that as a connective link between this and the previous piece, these, um, these artificial constructions and uh, man-made pieces that have been imposed on the landscape? Well, there is that link. I mean, it clearly is an area where we are very active in, in the estuary. We're there. It's an industrial space, but it's also a play area. You know, there are places like Margate, um, South End. These are places where people go and have a good time. You know, it's it's. There's, as, as, as evidence of that, there's a cocaine wrapper as one of the items. There is, in uh, fact, there is, an, there is indeed. Yeah, although I don't think you'd notice it was a cocaine wrapper unless you really were. Yeah, I don't know how Gail knew it was a cocaine wrapper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a big question mark there. George, what do you think when you see these pictures? I think it's really about human traces. Some of these objects really speak of humanity. So you've got like mm. children's toys cast aside. You've got not just rubbish, but things that actually tell you something about the activity that's going on there. It looks beautiful as an object, but then it also you can kind of intimate details of people's lives alongside alongside the estuary from what they've cast aside. And as a museum about people, we're often looking for those traces of humanity, those kind of things that tell you a little bit more about people's activity. We do think of London as the summation of the experiences of Londoners as much as a physical space. Mm -hmm. And obviously the estuary isn't part of the geographical definition of London, not the technical one anyway, but it certainly is part of London's reach, London's influence, and the idea of London hangs quite heavy over the estuary. So so the estuary is still a subject for us as the Museum of London. Um, And it's sort of, yeah, it tells us something different about the way that people in London behave and think and imagine... Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud. Tweet at Londonist Sound and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Well then let's talk finally about the content of the exhibition and perhaps name some of the other artists that we've not touched on yet. And I think this is ten years in, isn't it? The Museum of London Docklands has been going, as you say, a huge exhibition for the place. What can people see when they come here? Well, we've got 12 artists working in a variety of different media. So there are um, artists using film, artists using photography, artists using traditional painting and printmaking. There are interesting works by, for instance, um, we've got a film called Thames Film by William Rayban, John Smith, Horizon Five Pounds of Belgium, which is a fascinating film installation looking out to sea across from Margate. Basically, in, in, a, in a continuous loop, you get this sense of the sea 
um, and the land, the, the sort of you can't really call it the landscape. It's the, it's the sea off Margate and 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 the stuff in Margate in in the sea off Margate, like the wind farms that I was talking about there and there. And occasionally you'll see people on the beach picking through the digging for lugworms or whatever it is that they're doing. So people like William and John Smith, uh, William Raven and John Smith, they're two of the leading experimental filmmakers of, of this country. Um, so key works by them. Um, there are paintings by, as we've already looked at, Jock McFadden and Michael Andrews, extraordinary painting, Tim's painting, The Estuary, his last painting just before he died. Uh, it's an extraordinary sort of vision of ebbing and flowing it's the most extraordinary painting just in terms of its technique the, the, this sort of thick congealed paintwork and then this he's been throwing painting on flat on the floor and throwing turps into it so that it sort of washes the paint away and you get this sense of it does have a sense of sort of um ebbing and flowing and outflow and, and, a, and a sense of the passing of time and, and mortality to it okay you can read that back into it You know that we know that he died but at the same time it's an amazing image we've also got the Beau Gamelan we can't talk about the estuary without talking about the Beau Gamelan ensemble the Beau Gamelan, no you, you this, must this, this is elicited uh, laughter from George Young <laughs> what is going on here? the Beau Gamelan ensemble are, are just the greatest thing ever I think, I mean basically um, in the 1980s, these three artists, uh, Anne Bean, who's a performance artist, um, Paul Burwell, who, who sadly died now, but he was uh, uh, an experimental percussionist, jazz drummer, and Richard Wilson, who's, who's a sculptor these days, best known for the Sumpoil Room in the Saatchi Gallery and also for recreating the, um, the cliffhanger scene of um, the Italian job. Uh, uh, he did that at the Delaware Pavilion in Bexhill recently, last year I think it was. But he also he was part of this this core group uh, called the Beau Gamelan, and, and they were once described as a, a cross between J.M.W. Turner and Apocalypse Now, and that that kind of sums up. We've got this film of them performing out in rain and marshes. Uh, now, out in rain and marshes, you, you, there are there are these concrete furrow concrete barges stranded out on the mud this whole bunch of these things about a dozen of them just sitting out there and so over a period of time these guys the Belgamelon Ensemble they went out and they played the concrete barges as the tide came in so when they start out at the beginning of the performance they're on basically they're on dry land they're on these barges and they're, they're drumming away um getting all sorts of fantastic noises out of these things. You'd never believe that a concrete barge could be such a, a, a subtle instrument, percussion instrument. And they've got, like, pyrophones, which basically, it's like, imagine a, a neon tube and you knock both, end, both ends off it, cut them into different lengths, and then strip, um, sort of hook them together, and then blow a blowtorch down it, and it, it pulls out this incredibly mournful, eerie noise. So they're, they're really using these barges as, as a sort of orchestra. And all the, ti- all the time the tide's coming in. So as I said, when they start out, they're safe and dry. By the time they've finished, they're like up to their necks in, in, in water. 
So, incredibly dangerous thing to do. Don't do this at home, listeners. <laughs> Get a responsible adult to do it for you. But do, but do come here to the That's Museum of London Docklands yeah. and uh, have a gander. Yeah, and finally we've got um, a brand new film which we've commissioned from um, Nikolai Larson, which will be delivered um, in three parts across the period of the exhibition, and it's called Pottery of a River, and he's interviewing people who live and work on the river. So it's the river, the estuary, from the people who know it best, basically. That sounds absolutely fascinating, and I know there's other stuff to see as well, of course. In fact, we, we shouldn't spoil the, uh, the surprise by flagging it all up. How can people get here, and uh, where, where are you? Where are we? Where am I? <laughs> What's going on? We are at West India Quay. So um, the best way to get to us is either Tube is Canary Wharf, or the DLR is West India Quay or West Ferry. Um, we're on the quayside. We've got a lovely stretch of water out front, some nice tables where you can have a drink. It's, very, <laughs> it's a very nice setting on a sunny day. Um, um, basically, we're here, we're open seven days a week, ten till six. We're free. The exhibition is free. So. Which in itself is remarkable. Yeah, it's a, I, I urge everyone to take up that opportunity. It's a fantastic thing to have um, in, this, in London for no cost. You know, bring your friends. Yes, and finally the website is? It's www.museumoflondon.org.uk forward slash estuary. George Young Francis Marshall, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Francis Marshall and George Young. Thanks too to Andrew Scott, Becca Evans and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free.
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.